here. Yeah, our second reading this morning is from Joshua chapter 22. I'm going to read verses 21 through 31 and then 33 and 34. So hear the word of God. Then the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh said in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, the mighty one, God, the Lord, the mighty one, God, the Lord, he knows, and let Israel itself know. If it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. No, but we did it from fear that in time to come your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, the people of Reuben, the people of Gad. You have no portion in the Lord. So your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore, we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offerings, nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you and between our generations after us, that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings. So your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And we thought, if this should be said to us or to our descendants in times to come, we should say, behold, a copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offerings, grain offerings, or sacrifice other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. When Phineas, the priest, and the chiefs of the congregation, the heads of the families of Israel who were with him, heard the words that the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh spoke, it was good in their eyes. And Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, said to the people of Reuben and to the people of Gad and to the people of Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is in our midst because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. And the report was good, and the eyes of the people of Israel, and the people of Israel blessed God and spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land where the people of Reuben and the people of Gad were settled. The people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar Witness, for they said, it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Almighty God, you have promised to be amongst your people, and we pray your presence here this morning. We're here to receive a word from you, and we pray that we would turn aside from all of the changing opinions of our time 
and rest in your eternal word. Speak to us this day so that we might be alive and so that we might be your people. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I wonder how clear your map of the land of Israel is in your mind because today's sermon really is about geography and about land and its effect on the people of Israel. The historic land of Israel embraced territory on both sides of the Jordan River. Roughly two-thirds of the land was on the western side of the Jordan River and one-third was on the eastern side. The historic land of Israel was considerably larger than the modern state of Israel. And the Jordan River formed a kind of internal border between two parts of this nation. In Joshua 22, the territory west of the Jordan River is called the land of Canaan. We see that in verses 9 and verse 32. And the territory east of the Jordan River is called the land of Gilead. We see that in verse 9, 13, 15, and 32. Gilead is the home territory of the tribes of Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Way back in the beginning of the book of Joshua, when the whole Israelite nation was gathered on the eastern shore of the Jordan River, ready to cross over from the land of Gilead into the land of Canaan, Joshua tells the soldiers, the fighting men, from the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh to cross over with them to help them in the conquest of the land of Canaan. And so that's what they do. But now the land has been conquered and these soldiers are ready to go home. They're ready to cross back over to the eastern shore of the Jordan, back to Gilead, where their homes and their families are. In the opening chapter of chapter, the opening verses of chapter 22, Joshua and all the people are gathered at Shiloh. And Joshua tells the men of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh how wonderful they've been, how faithful they have been to their brothers and sisters, and how obedient they've been to God's commandments. And then in verse 6 we read, So Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their tents. Verse 9 explains exactly where those tents are. So the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned home, parting from the people of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the land of Gilead, their own land, of which they had possession themselves by command of the Lord through Moses. As they're heading home, as they're heading back to Gilead, They pause for a while near the Jordan River, near the crossing from the one side to the other, still on the western side, still on the Canaanite side, and they build an altar, which Scripture tells us was an altar of imposing size. And then the trouble begins. Because you see, in Deuteronomy chapter 12, we have this command, take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see, but at the place that the Lord will choose for you in one of your tribes. There you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I'm commanding you. Israel, the, the worship of Israel was always centered in just one place. 
In Israel, sacrifices were only offered at the temple in Jerusalem and before the temple was built. Those sacrifices were offered only at the tabernacle, which was a kind of portable temple for the purpose of permitting an altar, the purpose for permitting an altar and sacrifices only at one place, the purpose of this was to keep the 12 tribes a unified and single people rather than letting them scatter. Now all of us have heard of the Samaritans. The Samaritans are Jews, but they're Jews who became separated from the main body of Jews during the Babylonian exile, when the Jews who were in Babylon returned to Jerusalem and rebuilt the temple of Solomon, the Samaritans built their own temple at Shechem. And having these two temples permanently divided these two people, both of which were descendants of Abraham, both of which were heirs to the promise. It was precisely this kind of division that God wanted to prevent amongst his people. And one way to prevent this division was to mandate that sacrifices could only happen at one place. At the time of these events recorded for us in Joshua chapter 22, that one place was at Shiloh. And at the gates of the tabernacle at Shiloh, Joshua and Eliezer divide up the whole territory among the several tribes. And at those same gates, Joshua pronounces a blessing on these soldiers who are now returning to the land of Gilead. And as those soldiers are heading home along the way, they've now built this altar of an imposing size. A big altar. And this causes a big problem. Here's what we read in verses 11 and 12. Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built an altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan. In the region about the Jordan, on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard about it, the whole assembly of the people of God gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. Civil war. Now we live in a time when religion has so little to do with the way we think about things, when religion has so little influence on us in the modern West, that the idea of a religious war to us seems crazy. When the very existence of religious wars is taken as an example by non-believers as to why religion is harmful and should be done away with. Now, I hate war, and I think war is contrary to the gospel, but I do wish that we still took our religion as seriously as some of our ancestors did, those ancestors who were willing to have religious wars. Our faith makes claims about the most important truths that there are. Is there a God who created the universe? Has he revealed himself and his will to humankind? What's the purpose? What's the value of human life? What is the destiny of this planet? What kind of life pleases God? What's good? What is evil? What happens after we die? These are important questions. These are things that we should take seriously. Religion doesn't care about ephemeral things like style or taste or fashion or wealth. Those are matters of personal preference and pursuit and to each their own. 
But what about the big questions? Don't they deserve our serious attention? The Westminster Confession of Faith says that the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for His glory, for mankind's salvation, for faith and life, is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequences may be deduced from Scripture. The glory of God, our salvation. What we are to believe, how we should live. These are big and eternal issues and regarding them, we should be willing to fight. Not with swords of steel, of course. The Christian faith is not spread by the sword, but with the word of God. Which the Bible teaches is sharper than a two-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing the soul and the spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Anyone who has ever been brought to faith in Christ knows what it feels like to be penetrated by the word of God. It's when we've been cut to the quick, by the word of God, when God's word lays bare the corruption of our own hearts, that we finally turn to Christ and ask for mercy and relief. The children of Israel gathered at Shiloh when they hear this report that their brothers have erected an altar outside of Shiloh in violation of God's direct command, they take up arms and they're ready to go to war. That's how seriously they take God's word. And for that, they should be admired, even though they were wrong. The Israelites living in the land of Canaan were wrong about the Israelites living in the land of Gilead. Sometimes first impressions are wrong. Sometimes our gut instinct is wrong. Fortunately, in this case, the children of Israel did not make a mistake based upon their first impressions or upon their gut instinct. Instead of sending an army, they send a diplomatic mission, which does three things. It asks, what's going on? It says, you've got us worried. And it says, how can we help? Here's what we read in verses 13 and 14. Then the people of Israel said, sent to the people in the land of Gilead, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, and with him ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, Every one of them the head of a family among the clans of Israel. Rather than sending men of war, they sent a man of God along with ten elders. Sometimes it's better to talk than to fight. Even though their dander is up and they're sure that the people in the land of Gilead have committed committed a grave sin... They send diplomats to ask questions rather than soldiers to fight. How many of the conflicts in the church could be avoided if we were to ask rather than to fight? How many of the conflicts in our lives, 
in our families, in our workplaces, in our communities, in our political system, could be avoided if we were to reach out and talk to people, to try to understand them rather than just unloading on them with both barrels based upon our gut instincts. I'm preaching to myself, of course. When the diplomatic party arrives at Gilead, they speak their mind. They said, what is this breach of faith that you've committed against the God of Israel and turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourself an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? They're looking for an explanation. They say, what's going on here? No question the men from Gilead had built an altar. It's a big altar for everyone to see. And the men from Canaan see this altar and interpret it as a breach of faith. So they explain their concerns. They say, you've got us worried. If you too rebel against the Lord, then tomorrow he's going to be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. Whenever we sin... In our families, or in our church, or in our neighborhood, or in our nation, our sin doesn't only hurt us. It hurts all those people around us. The people that we're connected to. My private sin at home injures my wife and my children, even if they don't know anything about the sin. Because we're connected by invisible spiritual bonds because we are a family, a divinely ordained organic unity. And so any member of a family should be concerned about sin within the family. Not only because they love the sinner and want the best for him or her, but also because that sin will someday bear bitter fruit for the whole family. The sins of the father and the sins of the mother are visited on the children. This is a fundamental spiritual principle. It's not about God's cruelty. It's about the natural order of things. If there is disease in the body, the whole body suffers. I have a bad knee right now and my bad knee is making my back hurt. The same spiritual principle is also true in our churches and in our nation. By speaking with and correcting the person who is sinning, we not only bless that individual, but we also protect the larger body. As we read in Galatians, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves... Or you may also be tempted. So Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, along with these ten tribal chiefs, they go to the men in Gilead and they confront them about this situation that seems wrong. They confront them not only out of concern for those people, but also out of concern for themselves. And then finally they ask, can we help? 
Here's what we read in verse 19. If the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's temple stands. And take for yourself a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord or make us rebels by building for yourself an altar other than the altar of the Lord your God. Okay, now this is a little bit complicated, so I want you to follow my explanation here. The offending tribes are living in the land of Gilead on the eastern shore of the Jordan River. The main body of the children of Israel are living in the land of Canaan on the western side of the Jordan River. Thinking that perhaps this altar, which is built near to their territory but still outside of the land of Gilead, thinking that it might have been built so that they might be nearer to a place of worship because they're in this unclean land, the delegation from the land of Canaan says, come live with us on our side of the river. If you have to, we'll make room for you here, among us. Just don't make this mistake of committing this sin. Sometimes we need to invite sinners to come closer to us. Rather than driving them away. People who are stuck in patterns of sin rarely escape that bondage by being told, go away and don't come back until you get this cleaned up. If you really love a person who is in trouble, who is stuck in a pattern of sin, if you want them to be better, you had better pull them closer to yourself rather than pushing them away. This past week, I had a conversation with a young man, 24 years old. He was orphaned at the age of 17. And I'm pretty sure that I met his mother seven years ago at Holy Redeemer Hospital. She happened to be in the same hospital room as one of our members that I was visiting that day. And I visited with our member. And then I spoke with this woman who was in the other bed, you know, five feet away across the room. 38 years old, had been living a hard life, filled with a lot of bad habits, habits that were literally killing her. And as I often do, I asked her about her family and who was coming to visit her and who she would go home to when she was feeling better. And she told me she hadn't seen her family in a while and that it was probably for the best because she really wasn't much good to them. I said to her, we all need a family. And I prayed with her. And I left. Two weeks ago, I met a writer for the Bucks County Courier Times who's doing a series of stories about unclaimed human remains in the coroner's office. These are people who've died and no one has come to pick them up. And so eventually the coroner will take them to the morgue and there they wait. And the Courier Times published a list of the names of all the people who are waiting for someone to pick them up. And as I scan down the list, I see a name that seems strangely familiar to me. I think it's the name of this woman that I briefly met at Holy Redeemer Hospital seven years ago. And so I went looking for her family. And I found them. 
Her daughter was just 14 when her mother died. And her father had died five years earlier. And so she was an orphan at 14. And she thanked me for contacting her. And she said to me that she had been looking for her mom. (laughs) For seven years. Her son, who was 17 when his mother died, he heard about her death two weeks after the fact from a cousin. And as I'm on the phone with this kid, he rattles off the date that he got the news. He knew that date like he knew his own birth date. At the time, he was in high school. He had every reason to assume that the adults in charge were taking care of things. And as we talked, he wanted to know about my conversation with his mother. So close to the end of her life, he wanted to know why she hadn't reached out to the family if she were sick. And all I could say was sometimes people have a lot of regrets. And it's hard for them to reach out. And this young man with no good parenting models in his life, said to me, I would have come for her. I would have taken her in. Sin has a way of destroying relationships. And when we're stuck in patterns of self-destructive sin, we often run from relationships. But relationships are precisely what we need if we're ever going to get well. Johan Hari, the author of a New York Times bestseller about addiction and the war on drugs, said the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. And I think he's right. And when the children of Israel living in the land of Canaan thought that the children of Israel living in the land of Gilead were sinning, they sought the connection. The relationship. They said, come, live with us on our side of the river if that helps. Now connections and relationships are costly. Sometimes you have to give up some space on your side of the river. Sometimes you have to invite people into your lives and into your homes. But it is precisely that kind of costly love that we are called to as followers of Christ... Christ who sought out connections and relationships with people who themselves were cut off and isolated because of their sin. After the diplomatic 
delegation from the land of Canaan asks their questions and shares their concerns and expresses their willingness to help, the Israelites in the land of Gilead explain the altar of imposing size. Here's what they say. The mighty one, God, the Lord, he knows. Let Israel itself know. If it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. From the very beginning of their response, the Israelites living in Gilead affirm God's commandment. There must be no other sight for sacrifices. With their brothers from the other side of the river, they share this common concern for God's law. When we, the people of God, are in situations of apparent conflict, we need to begin the conversation with what we agree on. With what we hold in common. As Christians, there's more that we agree on than we disagree on. And yet to hear some of the internal interdenominational squabbles, you might think that we were mortal enemies. I never want to hear a member of this church badmouth or abuse a Roman Catholic brother or sister. Now, I enjoy being Presbyterian, and I don't want to be a Catholic. And I think John Calvin was more often right than St. Thomas Aquinas. But you know what? Any person who can stand with me and honestly and wholeheartedly affirm the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, that person is my brother or sister in Christ, and I fully anticipate spending eternity with them in New Jerusalem. Our beef is not with Christians of other stripes. Our beef is with people who deny there is a God. Or who deny that Jesus is the Son of God. Or who deny that Jesus was raised from the dead. Or who worship monkeys or elephants. When we have an apparent disagreement among our own, let's begin the conversation by affirming what we hold in common, what we share. For the Israelites, living both east and west of the Jordan, what they held in common was the Torah, the law that had been given at Mount Sinai. But the conversation doesn't end there. More explanation is needed. And what we discover is that the way things appear are not always the way things are. What the Israelites on the west side of the Jordan saw as an altar for sacrifice, the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan saw as a monument, a witness to the fact that they too were part of Israel. They were afraid that being on the other side of the river, that their children might be excluded from the larger family. And so they build this oversized altar as a kind of public monument that they too are part of Israel. Here's what we read. We did it from fear that in time to come, your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? 
For the Lord has made the Jordan the boundary between us and you, you people of Reuben and people of Gad. You have no portion with the Lord, so your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. It's kind of sad, really. They were living so far away from the center of Israelite worship on the other side of the Jordan River that they were worried that in coming generations their children might be excluded from the congregation. And so they build this oversized altar as a sign that no, we really do belong. What on first glance looked like rebellion and sin against God upon closer examination, is a visible sign of an extremely deep commitment to God. Which no one would have known if soldiers instead of diplomats had been sent. Now they say that all's well that ends well. And this episode certainly ends Well, it was perilously close to being a disaster, but caution and wisdom prevailed instead of hot-headed anger and righteous rage. So thanks be to God for that. Let us pray. Father God, for your testimony, we give you thanks for these reports about the lives and the doings of the saints of old, we give you thanks for your eternal truths and for your unchanging law. We give you thanks. Lord God, we pray that we would be a people who are bound together with other brothers and sisters in Christ by our common commitment to your revelation in Christ. I pray that we would see what we hold in common more clearly than those minor things that separate us. I pray that we would find unity in your law and in your word. Lord, I pray that we would be a people whose first instinct in times of apparent conflict is inquiry and listening rather than, I don't know, violence. I pray that you would make us wise, that you would preserve us from our own rashness, our own foolishness. Father God, we thank you for the the beauty of the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, purchased by the blood of Christ. I pray that we would love one another and be bound to one another deeply, permanently, and beautifully. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.